0: And we will be in John chapter 13, uh, verses 34 and 35. And we are now in the last couple weeks of this series that we've been in for a couple months now, um, entitled The Heart of Evangelism. And this series has talked to us about how each and every Christian, not just a select few or the specially trained, are called to live on mission uh, in their life, that we are called uh, to have a life that is shaped by the gospel, that is marked by grace, by mercy and compassion. And last week, Chuck looked at this idea that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, where sin has brought darkness and decay. The Christian is called to bring healing and restoration to a world that is hurting from sin. Today we turn to John's gospel. We see Jesus himself speaking to this very topic. We see Jesus uh, addressing his disciples, preparing them for the day that he will depart. And in this time, he commands them to do this, to love one another. And we'll see that love is really at the heart of evangelism because Love is at the heart of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and turn to God's Word this morning. It's John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. We're actually going to be looking at some verses earlier than that, but this is our primary text, so we'll read that for now. This is verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you now. Bending our knee to the one who loves us more than we can ever imagine. To a God that loved us first before we ever loved you. God, I pray as we open your word today that we, you would be here with us removing any distraction, any hindrance that comes in our way to understand these truths, this command that we have from you to love one another, that we may be edified, that we may be sanctified by your word through your spirit in this time. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I've mentioned this before, but, you know, we have three daughters uh, Emma's our oldest, and then Haven, and then Audra. They're eight, seven, and uh, almost two now. And, you know, we have done our best. We try, we strive to raise them to know Jesus, and... Uh, a couple of things that my parents did for me when I was young is that my parents repeated certain biblical phrases kind of throughout my life, and I still remember them. Sometimes my dad and my mom will say them still to my kids. It's a really beautiful thing, and they're ingrained in my mind, these biblical truths. So we have a couple of these uh, mantras that we give to our own kids, some that got passed on from my dad, but some that we've just uh, figured out are good for our own children. Uh, one of these is that when our kids get into an argument or a fight, we... Ask them two questions. We ask them, first one, who are you thinking about when you hit your sister, when you left your sister out, when you talked mean to your sister? First question, who are you thinking about? Secondly, we ask them, why do you love your sister? So here, I'm going to give you the answers. If you can't figure it out, who are you thinking about when you hit your sister? They're supposed to respond, I was thinking about me, myself. And then why do you love your sister? Because God loved us first. So I have them repeat that over and over. And I probably asked this question, oh my goodness, several hundred times, many times, right? Okay, so a couple years ago, my kids were playing in the pool at my mom's house. And one hit the other one. They're frustrated about something. And I took the child out, Elsa and I did, and let her cool off for a minute. And once she cooled off, we went up to her. And we said... I'm not going to tell her name. Child, who were you thinking about when you hit your sister? With a straight, serious face. She just said, coconuts. (laughs) Okay, and then I said, "Um, what did you say? Who were you thinking about when you hit your sister? Blank stare. She didn't say anything. Okay, so all right, let's try the next one. This next one's really easy. Why do you love your sister? And she just had a blank face. She's like, I don't know. Even now, when I ask them sometimes, I'll say, they're old enough, seven and eight. This was a few years ago in that story. But I'll, I'll ask them, who are you thinking about when you hit your sister? And they'll be like, oh, I, myself. They know the answers, right? And they, I say, why, why do you love your sister? Because God loves us first. <laughs> they're irritated. They're frustrated. I am too. I try to talk their heart, but like, okay, we're moving on, right? But, you know, I think about that mentality, right? And as an adult, I know how to say, I love other people because God loves me with a big smile, right? I can fake it. But often, we come to this idea of loving, lo- loving other people with the same mindset that my little kids have sometimes. If you ask yourself, why should I love this person that's so hard to love? In your heart, you say, because God loves me. I don't want to do that. So whether you're a Christian or not, we all struggle with this, right? Loving other th- those people around us. We often do not love those around us as we ought to. So we have to get at the root of it. The, the, the purpose of looking at any of your sin is to see why am I doing this? What truth am I not believing? Or what error, what sin am I giving into? So why do we do this? And I want to argue that One of the main reasons that we don't fully love those people around us well is because we do not fully understand or believe how much we are loved by God. That we don't fully comprehend or appreciate all God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you look at the culture around us in the last five to ten years, the tide has really shifted, right? Where normal conversations between People at a grocery store, on the news, even on the road, would have been kind of marked by civility and even apathy, just genuine care, uh, a little bit at least. In the last five to ten years, now normal discourse is really laced with disdain or distrust or hatred. That we live in a time now where people, kids, children are being shot for a basketball rolling into a neighbor's yard. I'm sure you heard this story on the news. We consistently read of stories of road rage turning into murder. A recent article was read, uh, was written trying to answer the question, why is everyone so angry? And this whole article was about why consumers are treating restaurant uh, employees and storefront employees in inhumane ways. That this type of behavior is not only accepted, but it is normal now. Scott Sauls in one of his recent books says that this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. This generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. That this spirit of hate that is in all of the air that we breathe in the culture can easily slip into our lives. And it probably has. It's in some way for each and every one of us. Maybe not how we speak, but maybe how we think. Maybe how we speak as well. A few months ago... I came across this quote that was really helpful for me. Many of you uh, said that was really helpful also, and it's this, that whatever is common seems normal, and whatever is normal seems right. Whatever is common seems normal. Whatever is normal seems right. So in our day and time right now, because it is normal for people to hate each other, it can feel right It can seem right because everyone is doing it. It can make us believe that thinking and acting in a hateful and disdainful way is okay. It's all around us. It's on our newsfeed. It's in our offices. It's on the road that we drive. But in our text today, and I would say throughout Scripture, we see this same theme, that a defining characteristic of the Christian is love. And love is really the essential opposite of hate, the air that we're breathing so often each day. You see throughout the Bible that God calls His people to love one another. Jesus Himself summed up the law in two things. Many of you know this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. But the thing is, in the Bible, the Lord never says, in beginning to end, He never says, Christian, I want you to muster up enough strength, enough willpower by yourself to go and love your enemies. He never says that. No, he says, let me show you what love is. Here is my son given for you. So God pours out his love for us first before we ever turn to him. That Christ has given us the very love in our hearts that He calls us to give out. It is given from Christ. So what does this have to do with evangelism? I'm going to argue in this time together that we have that love is at the center of evangelism, that we're not only called to reflect God's love, but to pour out the love that has been given to us in Christ. But we have to start... By understanding, by believing, by comprehending the love that God has for us first before we can ever go and try to love anyone else. So, our big idea today is Jesus loves us, so we are to love one another. Very simple. Jesus loves us first, so we are to love one another. We're going to look at two different things. First, the new commandment. This is verse 34. And then the new witness, second, we're going to dip into 34 and then stay in 35 for most of it, for that one. So let's look first uh, to the new commandment, verse 34. In verse 34, he says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So we see here that Jesus says he's presenting a new commandment, a new one. But that's interesting, right, because we know that in other parts of the Bible, even prior to this in the Gospels, that there is commands to love one another. I mean, Jesus later in the Gospels even summarizes the law into two things. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But we also see in Leviticus 19, this is laced kind of throughout the Old Testament, that you should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against sons of your own people, but... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So these are just a couple examples, but we see this command throughout all of Scripture. So when Jesus says, I give you a new command, what is new about it? We have to ask that as the reader. And I would say, what is new about this commandment that Jesus gives to us, the disciples first, and then the church in application, is the standard of love that he is asking his disciples to give to each other. The standard that Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you. That you are to love in the same way that Jesus loves you. The love that the Lord has lavished upon us in Christ, that is the way that we are to love one another. So f- the first thing we have to do before we try to love anyone else is to gaze upon the beauty, the reality of the love that Christ has for us if we ever attempt to love in the same way. So it's good for us to think about this in context, in the entire biblical picture, but we even get one in John chapter 13 earlier in the uh, scripture to give us uh, a story or a parable, a picture of how Jesus loves us. In John thirteen five. This uh, is talking about uh, when Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet. This is the narrative we're in in the beginning of John chapter 13. In verse 5, he says this. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel that was wrapped around them. I know, many of us have probably heard sermons on this very passage, but we know that this is a role reversal in this uh, passage here, right? We see the master is washing the disciples' feet. The king of the universe, what was was doing what was unheard of in the time. He is before performing the washing of feet, which was the duty of a servant, not of a master. In John thirteen six, the next verse he says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In the Greek it's very explicit. He says, Lord, you wash my feet? Peter was scandalized even by the idea of this. Clearly to Peter, it is completely inappropriate that the king of the universe would perform such a menial task for someone that is so unworthy. And Jesus responds in verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. So in all of this, we see that Jesus was hinting at The work that he would perform on behalf of his people, he was hinting at or giving a picture of his death that he would take for his people. He is pointing forward to the work of the cross. And what the disciples didn't understand in this moment is the same message that they would take to the ends of the earth once Jesus is gone. That the king has laid his life down for his people That is the message that they would proclaim. That Jesus himself speaks about it throughout the Gospels. You know, we kind of think about the the disciples as being real hard-headed because we hear of all these things. He's going to lay his life down. He's going to lay his life down. We're the same way, right? We're so numb to it. Here we see that Jesus himself said, I lay my life down, that I might receive it again. In Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Love that Jesus has for us is depicted in Second Corinthians chapter five. talks about Jesus becoming sin for us for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. The sin that you participated in actively this week is not counted to you, but it's counted to someone else, because He took it so that we might become. The righteousness of God in him. He took our sin, we took his righteousness. That is the narrative of the life of Jesus. That he died for us, that we may live. And the thing we see throughout scripture, not only in the life of Jesus, but from the beginning of time, that God is always the initiator of love. That nothing is said of people loving God first or even in return often. Often. But Christ still loves us. Even in the washing of the disciples' feet, the disciples were not allowed to reciprocate the act of Jesus. Rather, Jesus tells them, verses 13 through 15, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. So he's saying, go. Go and love the people around you as you have been poured into by my Son, Jesus Christ. Christ saved us when we were unworthy to be saved. Christ pursued us when we ran away from Him. The Lord remained faithful to the covenant when God's people, us, broke it over and over and over again. And Christ loved us when we were unlovable. What you see in Jesus' love is a love that pursues us when we are unworthy. In Jerem's book, he says this. He gave himself up to death, not for the righteous or the good, but for the sinful, for the disobedient. He gave himself up to death, not for his friends or for those who loved him, but for those who denied and forsook him. For his enemies, for those who hated him, this was new. Nothing like it had been seen in the history of the world. This is what Jesus has done for you, church. And we need to understand, comprehend, and believe these truths if we're ever going to attempt to be a witness for Jesus. Because we need to be poured into first before we can give out love at all. The thing is that this type of love that Jesus is calling his people to have for one another seems like an impossible task. I came to this text, and I read it, and I said, I know this context, and I can't do that. That's literally what I thought in my mind. That seems impossible. And after I sat in it for a while, I I came to the realization that it is impossible on my own. If I try to muster up enough strength, If I try to muster up enough willpower, if I create a checklist, I'm a checklist guy. I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this to love my family well. Tomorrow, I bet one of those out of six boxes will be checked if I try to do it in my own will. But it is only when our heart is full of the love of Christ that it can spill over into the life of other people. That we must first be receiving this love from Christ consistently and constantly for it to overflow to others. So the first step is to look inside, to see that inability. See, I can't love the people around me well. I can't do this on my own. But I want to. I'm sinful. Recognizing that inability, that sin. At the same time, the unworthiness that is in our very being for God's love to come to us, that I am unworthy of a holy God loving an unholy sinner like me. Coming to that point, sitting for a moment in the shame of sin, but then quickly turning to the one who took the shame for you. Seeing that Jesus did not want you to stay in your shame, in your sin, but he took it upon himself. So we are to look upon the one who took our shame, our sin. Look to Jesus. For the love He has for you, despite your rebellion yesterday, tomorrow, in a week from now, He still pursues you. He still loves you. That we need this right understanding, this right belief of the love that the Lord has for us in Christ before we ever can be a a good witness for Jesus. Let's look secondly at the new witness. This is verse uh, 35. We're going to... Start with 34, give us a little context, and then go into 35. So 34, again, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So, just like we looked at, Jesus commands his disciples to love as he has loved. But we need to think about the context, what I want us to point to, in this specific passage, on who Jesus is speaking with. So Jesus is speaking with his closest people in his life his disciples the people who have been following him throughout his ministry he is speaking directly to what we would say as christian people the first christian people right he's saying you my followers love each other like i have loved you so he's speaking of loving one another within the direct context and the direct application is within the christian community Love one another as I have loved you within the Christian community. Now, it can be applied broadly to loving everyone inside and outside of the church, but I think that the helpful thing is to stay close to the text and say speaking about here, now, is loving people within the church as Christ has loved us. And in that, we can be a new kind of witness in verse 35. He says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we are to be the church that loves each other in this way. And by doing so, it shows the love of Christ for the surrounding world. We first see that it is a responsibility for the church to love one another. Those people that are in this room with you now, or if you're not a part of this church, in your local church, to love the people around you in your local church. And by doing so, the text tells us, the love moves out as a witness to the world. I want you to think about what we've talked about in this series about um, living on mission where we live, work, and play. Those three categories, right? So the hope... Is, is that you would become friends in these different areas with these people, right? That you would be living with them, working with them, playing with them, right? And that you would get to know them. They would get to know you. They would come into your life, that you would welcome them in, that you would be investing into them, and they would see your life, how you treat your children, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your friends. And then whenever they see that, how you are loving the people directly around you, your family, your friends... That they would say, I have not seen love like that. I have not seen around me when I go into my own family that they would say, I, I don't see love like that. Tell me about this love. I don't know about this type of love. Early in our in our marriage, Alsa and I uh, started a Bible study. We were all there was a lot of us, fifteen or so, that were all serving in like ministry, uh, volunteering a lot. So we were teaching kids or youth or college or whatever. And I saw this reality that none of us were had a place for us to come together to just digest God's word, to grow together. So brought all these people together. And this is the tail end of my, my undergrad, and Allison was in her undergrad still. So we had some friends that were in the dorms uh, still that were there uh, also serving. But they were c- coming to this Bible study. So over time, this grew, right? It's kind of a social thing during college, and it was really fun. Um, but also we studied the God, God's word very seriously at the same time. We had some people come in that were roommates of one of, my, um, one of our friends, and she was. Uh, she started, the, the girl started coming by herself, and she was a proclaiming atheist. She would say that, but she's coming because, you know, it's college, was so kind of real open, kind of talk about whatever. So she would come, and she wouldn't say much during the time, but her boyfriend started coming with her uh, over time, and over the course of a year, um, they came to faith. One thing I didn't tell you is that after Bible study each week, we went to Applebee's for half price appetizers every week. It was our standing thing that we did. That's right. Um, just to hang out with each other more. We loved each other, right? So we did that. And when I reflect back and I ask them, these two people, so like what was it that brought you to faith? Was it like the really good doctrine? Because, you know, we're, this is when we were like cage states Calvinists. We were like all like doing all this reformed theology and just totally loving it and was it like all this good doctrine was it like the uh this part about jesus or this like, what? they're like that stuff was good and i appreciated what you said and it led me to who jesus was but what convinced me was how you treated you got each other at applebee's that is what won me over that I had never seen people in their 20s love one another like you guys did. And I'm not trying to do this to boast. I was probably one of the worst and very proud uh, at the time, Uh, very still am. So I'm not trying to boast at all. What I'm trying to say about this is the Lord uses this type of thing, even if it seems really subtle, right, that we are called to love, to be a witness, to show the love of Jesus. Right? And it does, especially in our time now. You know, this was almost 15 years ago now. Especially now in our time where the culture is so full of hate that a taste of true, genuine love by a Christian will be a breath of fresh air for anyone. So when we think about pursuing this type of love in our church, we know that it needs to reflect the love of Jesus, that we're to love one another with the same self-sacrificing love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, that we are to love those around us whether they love us or not, that we're to love those in our church whether they agree with us on major issues, on minor issues. This love that we're called to is to supersede any of these differences because we are unified and united in Jesus Christ that supersedes any of these differences. As big as they seem in your life, the love that Christ has for us and that we're called to have for one another supersedes that. And I need you to know that this love, often we think about love, even we watch movies and stuff about it. It's like, oh, I'm just, I feel really in love with someone. Often, that's not the biblical picture of love. Love, yes, it comes with those butterflies for a while and Tim Keller talks about this in his marriage book, That the butterflies come for a little while, but they fade. True love is a commitment. It is a choice to love when the other person is having a bad day. Right? It is a choice for you and for me to love one another despite what we see in the other person as a flaw. In his book, Jerem also says this. How will people know that we are followers of Jesus Jesus Christ How will people believe that the Father sent the Son? How will the world know that Christ has come from the Father and have loved us so fully in his death on the cross? Jesus tells us that unbelievers will know these things and will come to faith when they see the reality of his love lived out in our lives. Of course, you and I both know that we will never do this perfectly, this is why we had to be rooted in the love that Jesus has for us first, right? We have to always turn to him, knowing that I'm not going to do this as perfectly as I would like to. I'm going to strive to do it well, but I know I'm not going to do it as well as I would like. But for you and me, even in our lack of love, let us look to Jesus, the one who loves us perfectly. And that mentality will change other people around you. Because we know that Jesus, he loves us when we rebel against him still. He loves us when we feel indifferent towards him or growing in him. He loves us when we forget to pursue righteousness and the things of the Lord. He loves us despite our many shortcomings day after day after day. 1 John, the same author of John, says this, We love because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful thing it is to gaze upon the love that you have for your people. A love that at times we feel like we can comprehend and fully understand, but then when we truly look at it, we see disbelief in our hearts that God, holy and mighty, the creator of the universe, would do what you have done for us in Jesus. Father, we pray that the love that you poured out for us in your son would flow into our hearts, that it would be a constant stream, that we need you each day. And through that, the people around us would see the love that you have given to us as we pour it into them. Father, we need you. We are inadequate. We are unworthy. But, Father, at the same time, we pray that we would be vessels of your love to the people around us. As we come to your table now, God, strengthen us despite our weakness. Be with us at this table. Nourish your people. Father, we thank you for today. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.